I'm Agnes Kurtzels. I'm Whitney Winter. And my name is Claire Horning. Welcome back to the Ag Knowledge Podcast. Welcome back to the Ag Knowledge Podcast. Um, today, Claire will be talking with Holly, who did an internship this past summer, and they'll be talking about that. And then I will be talking with Leslie Johnson, who works at Haskell Ag Labs in Concord. And we'll talk a little bit about um, animal manure management. And then we will be talking about current events that are happening around our areas. And then we'll be talking about more national current events. So let's get right into it with Claire and Holly. So Holly, if you want to introduce yourself and um, say your major grade, all that fun stuff. I am Holly Hansen. I am a senior at Wayne State College. I am a double major in speech communication and agricultural communication. Um, where are you from? West Point, Nebraska. So, like, what is your background with ag growing up? What kind of got you interested in this degree? Uh, I grew up in a really small rural community, and agriculture has always been a big part of my life. Like, my grandparents all farmed, and I was heavily involved in 4-H as a kid and FFA as an adult. Throughout high school, I was always helping out on farms and doing odd jobs after school. So about your internship experience over the summer, you're talking about it in class, and I thought it would be really cool to pull you on the podcast to talk about it. So do you kind of want to explain what you did with that, where you were working, what your duties were there? Uh, I actually found an internship last minute with Agassiz Seed and Supply in Brandon, South Dakota, which is about six miles away from Sioux Falls. And I actually got to learn a lot more than I thought I was going to this summer. I learned a lot about how to sell seed, how to buy seed, how to properly like interact with customers. And there was farmers have a specific way of talking that you have to like slowly pick up on. And then as soon as you accumulate to that, it's like really easy to talk to them. But I learned some odd jobs like how to back up a forklift, how to drive a forklift, how to back up a trailer. Um how to do inventory, how to talk on the phone with customers. It was just all in all a really good job. So what was your favorite part about it? Uh, my favorite part was definitely like building connections with the customers and getting to know them personally. And then towards the end of the summer, it was like kind of sad to see them like the last time because it was like, hey, I'm not going to be working here anymore. But do you think like if you were to go back, that network would still be there for you? Uh, they actually did offer me a job after... I left again. They offered me like jobs on the weekends or because like like the customers that I built relationships with are all wanted me back and they I still get text messages from some of my customers and was like, "Ah, don't work there anymore." And they're like, "We miss you." I'm just like, "Yeah, I know." <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So then, uh what kind of job do you want to get when you graduate? Like is there a certain place you're looking for, a certain job you want to do? I do want to move back up to Sioux Falls because I love that city as in general but I definitely want to stay in the agricultural field but I want to go more in towards HR because that personally interests me I like working with customers and customer complaints and helping fix situations so would you say the internship kind of helped you find an avenue in that way uh, the internship actually was broken up into like month sections where I got to go into like each department and figure out what I wanted to do. So definitely, because there was one section I definitely knew I was never going back into. But then I kind of broadened my like search or like narrowed my search into what job I wanted after I graduated. So what were the different sections? Uh, one was like office work. One was kind of like warehouse, more of like learning how to like be more manual. And then the other one was going out into the field and selling and actually learning customer like differences. 
Uh, so then what did you learn from your internship experience? Like what was your main takeaway from it? My biggest takeaway from the internship would be with farmers, I learned how to better communicate with them. And I also used my major and used all of my like communication skills that I built up here at Wayne to fully advance my perspective on how to talk to people. So do you think your education here has prepared you to go out and do your job and do it properly? Uh, the agricultural communication department does need some more classes added to it. But since it's so new that it's still being developed, I completely understand it. Uh, but I took some classes through Northeast that also helped me like benefit for like, agricultural purposes. So I had more background knowledge. So within a couple years, I can see this department being completely like built. What else are you passionate about in agriculture? Do you like advocating? Do you like education? Do you like working directly with people and helping them? Like what is kind of your passion in the field? Uh, I actually learned a lot about advocation this summer. And there were certain times where I caught myself like even outside of work when some farmer would say something and I'd be like, no, cover cropping is good and no tilling is better. And then I would just like go on this little tangent. And that's when I realized I kind of wanted to go into more like management of agriculture because there's a lot of things that can be fixed or could be altered with just a proper education to farmers. So do you think there that we could like improve on the outreach to both like just the general public as well as the farming community about more efficient farming and just um, agriculture in general education to like better those practices and everything like that? Oh, for sure. And like podcasts like this definitely do help because when you listen to it, you learn certain things that you didn't know. And then it also helps like open your perspectives more. Whereas like farmers traditionally are stuck with like the 40 years of their past farming and they're really anti anything new or when you go about telling them like hey you should try this you need to be more like less pushy you have to just be like hey you should try this because I think it would help not ease into it (laughs) not you're doing it all wrong thanks again to Holly for sitting down and taking the time to interview Um, It was a lot of fun, and I think um, for us especially who are looking to do internships in the future, it gave us some good insight into kind of what that process looks like and some different things we can take away from that. So I'm here with Leslie, and I'll go ahead and let her introduce herself. Hi, Agnes. So I'm Leslie Johnson. I am the Animal Manure Management Extension Educator And I am based at Haskell Ag Lab, but I have a statewide appointment. So that means that I work on programs and with educators across the state on manure management issues. What is the Haskell Ag Lab and what do they do there? So the Haskell Ag Lab is, it started out as a research facility where livestock and crop researchers were were trying to figure out best practices for farmers in the area. Um, And it was actually originally started by a bunch of farmers that demanded this essentially from the university. And so it started out as that research farm and we still have one researcher on site, um, but most of our researchers are based in Lincoln. Um, We don't have animals right now, but there's been some talk that at some point we will get them back again uh, and have cattle on site as well. Like I said, right now we don't. There are three full-time extension educators on site here. Uh, Me being one of them, it's got a statewide appointment. There are two that are county-based extension educators. One is um, in the cropping department and the other one is in 
the early childhood department. So we have oh, quite a variety of folks here. So what do you do as the manure management educator? Haskell, like I said, is my home base, but I do programming across the state. So um, my local programming, when I do it here at Haskell, most of the time will be um, like manure management trainings, be it how to apply manure on an agronomic basis primarily. Otherwise, we I have done different demonstrations where we've shown manure versus commercial fertilizer and how that's different, uh, not in a full research trial, but just enough that folks could come in and actually look at those plots and see differences and get a little bit of data that might, if we find something that is interesting, then we could turn it into a full research trial at some point. We haven't done a lot of that yet. I kind of dipped my toe into the water and then COVID hit. (laughs) So I haven't done any more of that. So manure management, like I said, is primarily making sure that manure is applied in a way that crops can utilize all of those nutrients and that we're making sure to not get that manure into the water because those nutrients can then cause problems for uh, fish or other wildlife if those nutrients get too much in there. Never mind the fact of humans, you know, if there's E. coli in the water, then that's a danger as well. So um, making sure that we get those nutrients out there for the crops, but not so much that we're going to have problems with water quality. Why soil health? Why soil health? Well, (laughs) (laughs) soil health, in my mind, and everybody has a little bit different definition, but soil health to me, though, means that it's making the soil more resistant or resilient that's probably a better word, to either climate change or whatever you're going to throw at it. So in my mind, improving soil health on my own farm is all about making sure that my kids have a good farm in the future uh, and making sure that we can be profitable for a long time. What kind of manure systems are out there? Well, there's lots of different manure systems here in Nebraska, especially in northeast Nebraska. Probably the biggest one is feedlots. So you're gonna have the solid manure off the feedlot surface. Most of those larger lots are gonna also have what we call a holding pond that's going to have uh, the runoff water from that feedlot. Usually there's not tons of nutrients in that because most of that is already lost on the feedlot surface, but there are nutrients there and we do have to manage it as a manure for that reason. Um, So that's the primary one here in the Northeast part of the state. We of course also have poultry Uh, So we have poultry litter, depending on the type of facility, a layer facility is not going to have any bedding with it. So it's going to be a lot more potent or concentrated. It's going to have a lot more nutrients in it compared to the like broiler litter, which is going to have bedding in it. So it'll be diluted with some carbon in it. Um, And then there are, of course, some hogs around in the area. And so that's going to be more of a liquid system. Usually that's a deep pit. Um, so that manure goes directly into the pit. So it's again, more concentrated than your beef manures or your, um, poultry litter with bedding, but it's not going to be as much so as say your layer manures, because there's more water usually in that hog manure than there is in the poultry litter. So as harvest season, you know, is coming to a close, what should producers be doing or be aware of? Um, manure wise? Okay. So a lot of manure application actually happens immediately following corn silage harvest. 
So a lot of that is already happening or uh, will be happening very soon. Um, some of it may already be done because corn silage comes out usually the first part of September. Sometimes it's late August when that comes off. So manure application definitely has started for the year. But the big thing is making sure that you have the right nutrients for the soil type. That, so the soil can handle the nutrients. The crops are going to utilize those nutrients. That's what I'm looking for. Um, if you're, when you're applying it in the fall, you want to make sure that your soils aren't wet. So you're not compacting it any more than you have to, because when you go out, when it's, when the soils are wet, you're more likely to compress those soils and you'll have more problems than in the spring, getting those crops going. So that's one of the big things is watching for the, the timing to be proper and making sure that you know exactly how much you're applying. The main way to know with manure application, well, with any fertilizer application is to calibrate that manure spreader or that fertilizer spreader and make sure that you know um, how many tons per acre, or how many pounds per acre that you're putting out, depending on what you're applying. Are there any laws or regulations that affect manure application in the winter? So here in the state of Nebraska, actually, there aren't laws about applying manure in the in the winter time, you can do that. Um, it's not recommended because you're not getting those nutrients into the soil. They're sitting on the surface. And so if we have a lot of snow and it melts really fast, it goes into the water. So we definitely don't recommend it, but right now there's not laws on the books that say you can't do that. Um, if it becomes a big problem, then of course the legislature could definitely make that a flaw. Uh, but we try to encourage folks to not do that because you do lose nutrients that way. There are some rules that if you are part of certain programs with the NRCS, they can tell you you can't apply in the winter here in Nebraska, but that's through NRCS and that is only for certain programs that they have. Is there anything else you would like to add? Well, I would encourage you to come uh, and find out more about the, the facility, not just me. Um, one of the things that we have going on on the second Tuesday of the month um, is coffee and conversations. It'll get you to meet a lot of the staff here, uh, not just myself. I, I'm the one that organizes that, but that doesn't mean that I'm the only one around. So I encourage you to come out and meet the staff as well as meeting um, neighborhood area, area residents uh, that are interested in things that are going on around here. So we did the field day this summer um, that was uh, essentially an all-day program that goes on uh, over, it's usually one day, like nine to two-ish, where we have vendors and presentations and that kind of, mm -hmm. um, and we do that on an annual basis. We've been trying to do more smaller programming, uh, one of which is coffee and conversations, trying to get that together and get people in here and talking to us and let us know what it is they want to see as programs. We did have the fall fest where we really focused on the the arboretum and the orchard that we have here because we have fruit trees back here that we can harvest and uh, there's just lots of cool things that can happen in the arboretum so really focused on that for that fall fest and then we are planting planning some winter programming so we're working on some new stuff and trying to get a couple of other things going on other than just the farm and the research and things that are going on here. So thank you to Leslie Johnson for taking time out of her day to talk to me about Haskell and what she does there, along with the other stuff she does around the county and state.
So just a little bit more about Haskell Ag Lab. Uh, Haskell is based out of Concord, Nebraska. They were established in 1957. Three years earlier, local residents formed the Northeast Nebraska Experimental Farm Association, which was to promote, encourage, and procure the establishment and operation of an equipment farm in Northeast Nebraska. Uh, The first major financial contribution toward this effort came from the experimental, when the Experimental Farm Association took a donation of 320 acres from C.D. Haskell family, and it was turned over to the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, which is where it is now the Haskell Aglag for Northeast Nebraska for from UNL. UNL. So do they have like students that work out there, or kind of how does that work? So they have some like grad or not yeah grad students that like do their research projects out there and then they also have just like some people that work for UNL Mm -hmm. that do you know the farming and the test plots and uh, they also do like different application rates they have in in like an orchard it's not called an orchard but it's like an orchard (laughs) they have like a bunch of fruit trees and nut trees and they have like a bunch of native trees up there Mm -hmm. but do they use greenhouses at all on the lab premises no okay so they were mostly um just farming and they did have like a swine facility and a uh, beef feedlot now there's talk about the feedlot um going back in yeah (laughs) okay but nothing permanent yet you know but uh they do quite a few like family days i would say (laughs) um like we went up there during one of their weekends where they had like a lot of nebraska businesses come and have like a booth or something and then you could you know talk with all the people and they also had like a truck go up to the um orchard i don't know what it's called they have like other family days where people can go and just have a day out on the farm see what's new there what they're doing Do you know if they can have, like, school-sponsored, like, field trips to there? So I know they do, like, some. Like, they do a lot with 4-H because they're connected with the extension office in Concord or in Dixon County. I know, like, on their family day or their field days, whatever you want to call them, they do have, like, little kids come because, like, the extension office helps host that. So they'll have, like, a bunch of 4-H clubs come. Some other things they do, like, on the first tuesday i believe of the month they have like a sit down and coffee where people from the community can come and like talk with the actual like scientists and the workers there so they can learn like what's going on or even ask questions about your own farm there and like ask for insight on your crops or your fertilizer applications or anything like that which i thought's pretty cool yeah mm-hmm. that's a good opportunity to kind of um talk to local audiences because i know a lot of obviously research projects are very formal and you like present it to other like s- community scientists i guess so it's good that there's outreach to just a regular person audience instead of people who understand all like the jargon and all the numbers and data that goes along with it but it, being able to just relate it back to what actual people are doing is really important so that's a oh. program I'm sorry, it's the second Tuesday of the month, not the first. You liar. (laughs) I know. I think this event that they put on would give a nice face to the company. Well, not the company. The program. Program, yeah. So that the people in the communities know who's, like, behind it. So they understand, like, this isn't just some 
big old operation. There's people behind the science, behind the technology, and behind the farming and everything. So having that monthly, like, kind of sit-down coffee meeting Mm -hmm. allows a lot of people to build some rapport, build some trust. Yeah, and figure out, like, what they're actually doing and have a better understanding of the program itself. Mm -hmm. They also do, like, a lot of workshops where you can, I know they have done, like, a honey workshop where they had someone come in and show, talk about honeybees and stuff Mm -hmm. and how you can make different housing for different types of bees, different stuff like that. Well, also what um, pollinators that you provide makes the honey taste different and the some of the natural dyes and like flowers and other stuff can change to the color of the honey also yeah and a lot of people don't understand that because they probably didn't have a sit down talk about like you know honey and bees <laughs> so whitney so. you want to tell us some fun ffa news Yes, so this past week uh, was the 94th National FFA Convention in Indianapolis, Indiana. So each state and U.S. territory gets this time at the end of October to congregate in one place and compete. If you qualify at your state level, um, you get to go on to nationals and compete then. But for Nebraska, there was... 15 chapters that had a star rating and so that means they were rated one two or three stars and the wayne ffa chapter actually got three stars so what is like the significance of that for people who maybe don't know so that means that they are outstanding they're very outstanding in like their community their outreach program and then their competitions also they're they have like a wide arrangement of what they're doing with their chapter so we talked about land judging, livestock judging, agri-science, presentations, public speaking. Vet technology. Yeah, vet tech. There's almost anything you can think of. FFA probably has a program or competition. Yeah, they even do like public speaking and business yep. and stuff. I was in public speaking event, but we it was a demonstration. So my sister and I demonstrated how to shear a llama and or alpaca. And so we had this cutout of a llama and we had glued the fiber on it and so then we demonstrated how to shear for the people that might not know you want to take the entire cutting of your animal in one swipe so that you don't have like a second and third cutting in that first bunch because the first cutting is going to be used as your higher end when you like for fabric when you're making mm, stuff no when you process it into like when you spin it And yeah, so for this ag demo, we just did something really super easy like that, that we knew from heart, but a lot of people probably wouldn't even understand. Mm -hmm. So super easy. Yeah. My favorite FFA event was ag sales. I liked ag sales because I like to talk. (laughs) Well, you mentioned that you had done an ag demo when you were I uh, Yeah, I also did an ag demo, but ours (laughs) ours was a little bit more thrown together. (laughs) Yeah, we did it about ticks and fleas on just like dogs and animals. And so we made, we obviously did not have ticks. So I made just like a little tick looking thing out of duct tape. And then I had a stuffed animal dog because we didn't have a real dog. (laughs) That was kind of how we demonstrated. And then we had like the board and everything. So Mm -hmm. it was, it was fun. I don't, I don't remember us doing very well with it because it was just like a last minute type of thing. But I know a lot of people when I was in high school were just getting into drones. And so our FFA program had partnered with our local uh, seed and fertilizer company. And they had, I think, given us one or like helped us purchase one. Um, So 
one of the groups of guys used that and was demonstrating how to use a drone for like checking your fields. Um, yeah, see, that would basics. be really smart. <laughs> see, yeah. We have a local farmer. Sorry, this is a little bit off topic, but still on topic with drones. But he's from Bloomfield and he started getting into drones and he uses drones to look at his cattle. So like he doesn't have to drive into the field and, you know, cause a mass chaos with cows just running at him because mm-hmm. they think they, he has food. Mm-hmm. But he'll um, he uses it to like check them, see if it's calving or not, or just see, make sure that everyone's there, you know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's a good idea. But also some news with Nebraska and the National FFA Convention was that the star farmer for this year was named after a Holdridge FFA member, Grady Johnson. So his SAE, or as we know it as a supervised agricultural experience, was primarily about baling corn stalks, but also evolving around corn in general and then ethanol. But he had started as a independent farmer raising sheep. Mm. Cool. So, Good for him. We're proud of you. So he was awarded the Star Farmer Award at the National Convention this past week. That's a really hard award to get. It is because you're going against all 50 states and then our territory. So like the U.S. Virgin Islands and I think Puerto Rico's there too, but yep. Cool. Hey, is that it for local news? I think so. Agnes, you got any more local local happenings? Only if you want to talk about harvest. A lot of people around here are almost done. I know Nebraska just this week, which is... November 2nd yeah, is today. The, November 2nd, but a lot of people of Nebraska got snow the other day. Mm-hmm. Not a lot, but they got some. I know the Panhandle has had snow. I think last month, beginning, middle, sometime, they had snow, but Northeast Nebraska still has not had snow. We've had heavy frost, but no snow yet. Yeah, back where I'm from, um, South Central Nebraska, my dad actually sent a picture yesterday of the grass and the entire ground being covered with snow. And then my aunt in our group chat with all our cousins and other aunts and uncles sent a picture in the early morning and just her trees and everything was just white. Yeah, I feel like it's it has been really late for us. I know last year we had snow by October. Uh, October. End of October mm-hmm. it was and snowy. we haven't even really had that hard of a frost yet. Yeah. I mean, we've had, you know, below freezing some nights, but it's But not I haven't been... woken up to, like, frost on the windows or yeah, on the ground, yeah. which I would normally have done by now. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I've only had to scrape ice off my windshield once this year so far, so. Oh, yeah. Okay, last bit of local news. I just want to shout out to my dad. It's his birthday today, so happy birthday, my dad, Rodney. <laughs> <laughs> well, happy birthday to Claire's dad. <laughs> Going on to national news, I guess, since we don't have any more um, local. local. So John Deere workers have been protesting for the last several weeks for better pay, better benefits and stuff. Well, just the other day, the United Auto Worker said that they have come to or they have made an agreement Mm -hmm. that will be voted on in the coming days about about a pay raise, better benefits, and better retirement benefits for these workers that have been on strike. Mm-hmm. Do you know what like triggered the strike to happen, or was it just kind of like everything Honestly, piled up and they were just like, "We're done with this. We're gonna." Uh, this this says that the UAW, the United Auto Workers, said that it was days after overwhelmingly rejected a they John Deere overwhelmingly 
overwhelmingly rejected a six-year labor contract that was agreed on with the tractor maker. Mm. So about 90% of the union workers were against the deal. And so now they had to go and get a new one, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I know one person had been, like, during the pickets or whatever, one person had died from being hit by a truck, I believe. So that, I think, also put more pressure on it because, like, people were... Upset. Upset. But um, the new deal would... I'm getting this from the Des Moines Register.com, but it would double wages and... Or double wage increases and boost future retirement payment, it would allow UAW members to receive a 10% wage increase, and that's about 5 to 6% more than what Deere was offering in the first proposal. A 25-year employee would see an extra $150 a month. So this um, article is from Reuters.com. Uh, it says that Deere & Co. agreed on a new six-year contract with the United Auto Workers Union that would will be coming up for a vote. Um, and this new deal would cover about 10,000 employees across 12 different facilities in Iowa, Illinois, and Kansas. So this article does mention that the strike started October 14th um, when the first deal was, you know, voted against. But the strike started because the company celebrated record profits, and the executives at Deere were expecting to earn $5.7 billion to $5.9 billion for the fiscal year, and CEO John May's pay increased 160% in 2020 to $15.6 million. Mm-hmm. I, and bet, when, I bet nobody else got a pay increase that big, huh? I was going to say, when, um, especially like when the pandemic hit and a lot of people like weren't working, they didn't so feel it was very fair that yeah, they were not going to get a pay increase. That's for, kind of a slap in the face, really. Yeah. That's, mm-hmm. a, that's a really big slap in the face, actually. Because, like, I'm sure he does a lot of work, but also he's not doing a lot of the grunt work yeah. and being in on the ground and having to deal with COVID and worrying about, like, maybe family or your wife losing a job or something like that. So I, he's, he's, he's under a little less stress. Not yeah. to be exaggerating well, or anything. Here- it was a, some of them going into work are like, you're facing death. Like, you could contract COVID and then bring it home unexpectedly. And someone yeah. you love could die. Like, and not they like that. And not like he couldn't get COVID. Well, yeah. But also, he's a CEO, and I'm sure his paycheck isn't hurting anyways. Mm-hmm. So taking a raise on top of that when everyone else is facing a lot of stress and problems, especially financially and with their health, that's, that's kind of a mean thing to do. <laughs> yeah. This article yeah. says that the lowest level dear employee covered in this contract, such as a foundry product, um, would see their hourly wage increase immediately from twenty dollars and twelve cents to twenty two thirteen, which is the highest level. And then, sorry, and then the highest level of work, such as electricians, would see their hourly wage go from thirty oh four to thirty three oh five. So they're getting a pretty good increase with yeah. that ten percent. But the vote is supposed to take place, so I who, believe today. So who votes on that? I think it would be their board. The union. And like the- Okay. The union yeah. workers. Oh, okay. I gotcha. The reason they rejected it last time, though, was because they didn't feel like it was enough. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's so why they the rene- workers were renegotiated and then. Mm-hmm. Okay. Gotcha. Does gotcha. your article say what the last percentage increase was for that proposed bill? Yeah. Uh, well, the it was 
I think I might have said it before, said, but like, six to seven. it was, yeah, huh. the 10% increase was 5 to Listen, 6% Whitney. more. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. But glad that's getting worked out because that could have been that, but it, not that it wasn't bad, but it could have got a lot worse the longer it went mm-hmm. on. You know what I mean? So yeah. I'm glad that's getting resolved and there's going to be some good that comes out of it. So this new deal would also offer like every other year raises. Okay. So the longer you work there, the more money you make, which is how it should be. Mm -hmm. Another current event that I want to talk about a little bit is this is a source from agweb.com. And it's talking about, well, the article is called From Historic Conservation Funding to Farmer Debt Relief, Who Will Pay for Biden's Revised Build Back Better Plan? So basically what the plan is for those who may or may not know or be following politics because it's kind of crazy all the time anymore, you know. So it's going to provide things like debt relief, loan forgiveness or modification, and then it's going to assist underserved producers that live in high poverty areas as well as um, allow farmers or ranchers who experience past discrimination within USDA credit programs to apply for additional assistance. Basically, what that means is there's going to be a lot of money going towards that plan to help out, you know, farmers, ranchers, people in agriculture who are kind of on the ground working, who had obviously a really tough time with COVID or other kind of mitigating factors. But the problem is, who's going to pay for it? Because we all would like to know where that comes from. So basically, what this article says It's talking about that the people aren't going to pay for it. And it's talking about how corporations that haven't made taxes are going to pay a little extra tax. And that was called a surtax. So uh, they were going to establish a corporate minimum tax, tax on stock buybacks, corporate foreign profits tax, uh, Medicare tax limited business loss deductions and then they're going to get more funding for the IRS in order to fund those things but a source in this article says that there's a chance that the issue could change or the the plan could change because it's obviously not passed yet they're still debating on it revising it and everything like that because it's like a 20 page proposal so obviously there's a lot of details that need to be worked out um but this this guy says um, while changing, I his his last name is Wiesemeyer. I'm pretty sure that's how you pronounce it. I'm so sorry if I pronounced that wrong, <laughs> but um, one of his quotes say while changes to stepped to stepped up basis, capital gains tax and a billionaire tax are not likely. Tax sources signal the following potential items to watch. Um, so it's the two items are reducing the estate tax exemption. Um, So that is another proposal that's been on the table. And then changes to a wealth transfer tool. Um, So that would, that would basically, lawmakers um, want to limit the benefits of grantor trust, which is a wealth transfer tool. Um, So a proposed change could make assets held within a grantor trust return to the estate or make transactions between individuals and their grantor trust taxable events. Um, so basically, there's a lot of different factors going on here. So obviously, if you're interested in politics or you um, would be eligible for these programs, that's definitely something to be looking into and continue to follow. But um, 
right now it's kind of an issue as to where the money is going to be and big corporations and um, places like that have the ability, the resources to be able to kind of move money around and avoid certain taxes. They do charities and stuff like that. Um, So that makes it difficult for kind of everyone else to make up for that loss of tax money. Um, And then just kind of everyone else has to make up for that big gap, which is really unfortunate. And it also causes problems, especially with plans like these, when um, kind of the the money that they are relying on getting for this plan would be from those places that aren't reliable sources to gain taxes from. So I think that's definitely a problem. And it's, it's going to create issues going forward with the plan. So I just wanted to throw that out there as kind of a current event to be watching. That's kind of political. I know we don't get political very often, but this is just the what the Build Back Better plan says, just to kind of break it down a little bit. So thank you, Claire. Yeah. So my current event is um, from the Oklahoma City Centennial. The Oklahoma State University is receiving a grant of more than $2.6 million to research ways to improve agricultural production while reducing environmental impacts. The portion that Oklahoma State University is getting is part of a $10 million competitive grant. The article says researchers are working on a five-year project plan funded by the USDA Institute of Food and Agriculture, which will focus on regenerative agricultural agriculture for crops such as like cotton. So Kevin Wagner, which is Oklahoma State University's director of the Oklahoma Water Resource Center, said that, quote, climate, livestock grazing, crop rotation, hydrology, regional economics, and more, um, the system in regenerative agriculture are just too large, complex, and intertwined for a simple solution, end quote. So that means that the researchers um, are going to focus on regenerative agriculture, which typically occurs in like regions of the U.S. with 40 to 50 inches of rain per year, which uh, affects research outcomes significantly. So a lot of studies are focused on those wetter areas where less studies are focused on areas like, you know, Oklahoma, Texas, and like panhandles of states where there's significantly less rain per year mm-hmm. so rain affects variables like arid conditions um different agriculture practices um livestock management and like crop management um and the article says cotton in particular wagner uh, in this article said they're going to monitor the quality and quantity of runoff water from fields where regenerative practices have been implemented, leading the team and assistance um, with, like, stakeholder engagement and then trying to find outreach. So this program includes, like, short-term and long-term goals for the next five years, Mm -hmm. which is, I think, a practice that all grants have to put together. Yeah. But the grant is part of the USDA's um, recent investment of more than $146 $146 million in sustainable agriculture research projects aimed at improving a robust, resilient, climate, smart food and agricultural system. Doesn't cotton need a lot of humidity? See, yeah. I thought, because I thought I was wrong, because I was like, because it has to be 
dry, but I don't know. For some reason, I thought it should be humid for cotton, but I may be thinking well, of something else. maybe. I just assumed it was dry heat because... I don't know why I thought it needed to be humid for cotton, but maybe I'm just thinking of something else. <laughs> I don't... Corn? <laughs> no, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, we have a thing, and now my professor is going to probably make fun of us when he listens to us, but every podcast that we say corn, he'll make fun of us for it. So I think we I've made it my goal to every podcast mention corn in some type of way. Mm-hmm. Just because it's funny. It's like now that you pointed it out, we're gonna do it on purpose. <laughs> but living in Nebraska, it's inevitable to talk about corn. Yeah. Especially we're the corn that we're a state. Yeah. And um, especially that harvest is about over for most farmers, if not already. I have one that's kind of related to what Winnie was just talking about. A little bit. A little bit related. Okay. Um, so this is um, an article from agupdate.com, um, and it is called Increase Heat Stress Pressures Animal Welfare, comma, Profit, and it is from October 30th, so it's a very recent article. Um, so basically, it's talking about how um, global rising temperatures are impacting the livestock industry, and Whitney mentioned that just briefly in what she was just talking about. So I thought that was a good kind of transition and connection to make between the two. Um, so animal welfare is a pretty big issue. We want our animals to be safe, healthy, all of that stuff so we can um, obviously get a good product from them, but also so they don't live a horrible life because that is not very nice and we don't want that to happen. So this is just kind of giving some examples of how heat stress is impacting um, different animals. So, uh, for example, the article says that heat stress in dairy cows causes a reduction in milk that cuts into the producer's bottom line, and feed efficiency also decreases during periods of heat stress. Um, So cattle do acclimate to environments, obviously. So when the summer months come and it's really hot outside, they're ready for that. They're ready to take it. But when it gets hot really early, they're not ready for that. It can cause sicknesses. Um, Yeah, so this says in early summer, they aren't used to that heat, and then that's where you see more deaths. And also, when cattle get too cold, they burn up energy trying to stay warm. Uh, So that, again, is going to reduce your feed efficiency Um, An average daily grain. Wind speed and humidity also play a role in heat stress. Um, So they need to be able to have like the hot and sticky, like during the day, they need to have like the cool at night in order to kind of get the gross sticky wetness off of them and everything like that. Well, it's just like anyone, if you're exposed to really hot for a really long time, you're sweating a lot, you're really tired, you're exhausted, it can make you sick, everything like that. Same is true for animals. Mm-hmm. I mean, especially if they're not used to it and it's it's going to be a change going from now on because temperatures are rising. So it's going to be an issue and we're going to have to figure out a way to to try and, you know, prevent the issue from continuing. And while we do that, um, think of ways to... Um, be able to, I guess, care for livestock. Maybe we have to have like an overnight barn or something for them, which obviously is not a great solution, but it it is one solution that I could think of off the top of my head. But just something to be aware of is how, you know, like climate change and everything like that doesn't just impact people. It also is impacting animals and agriculture in general. So it's just not like a, 
oh, it's not going to affect me because I'm going to be dead type of thing. It's going to affect everything kind of from now a couple years ago on. So it's just something to keep in mind, I think. Well, and it's not only the extreme temperatures. It's also that sudden shift between temperatures. Like yes, that's when we true. see, uh, you know, we've had weeks here where we were up in the 80s and then all of a sudden we dropped to 50s and it, it kept doing that every day. Mm-hmm. And it was like a gamble of what it was going to be. And you saw a lot of cattle getting down with pneumonia and yeah. stuff like that. Even with it being extremely dry for a long period of time and then all of a sudden it being wet, it caused a lot of hoof hoof problems and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So just seeing these drastic changes in climate and um, temperatures Mm -hmm. and just weather in general, it it does make a huge effect on the product. Like I said, you can adapt to changes, but it takes time. And these changes are so like sudden, like within a snap of a finger, the temperature's dropping, it's rising. You can't adapt to that quickly. Like Mm -hmm. just you can't. Yeah. Well, I have another kind of current article about will uh, it's from AgWeb. the title is will the run-up in retail meat prices continue the usda thinks so and says um, consolidation isn't fully to blame it goes on talks about how they're expecting meat prices and pork prices to continue to rise which could be an issue for a lot of people uh and unfortunately a lot of that money isn't getting back to the farmer Beef prices are expected to be about seven and a half or six and a half to seven and a half compared to the increase last month of four and a half to six percent. Mm. So we're going to see a pretty big increase there. I don't know. I think this would just be a really good time to start going back to like your smaller producer and ask, you know, buying beef from your local grocery store or something, because especially if you're going to somewhere and you're going to buy beef for an expensive or a larger price tag and you don't know where that beef is grown or something like that, you, I think it would be so you a good time. So you want to go back to like your local people is what you're trying mm-hmm. to say. Yeah, I think it would be a yeah. good time to like start maybe switching back because at least you know that money is going to go back into the community, into the community yeah, than um, just going to Hashtag retailers or producers. support small businesses, am yeah. I right? <laughs> <laughs> but... Yeah, it's just, it says with the low imports, labor shortages, and strong domestic demand, prices are increasing. So, I don't know. I it, They don't project it to decrease anytime soon, it sounds like. So, especially in the pork market and beef market. Which are the two largest right here in Nebraska and Iowa. Yeah, I don't know where chicken ranks, but I'm sure it's, it's not nearly as high as the beef. Yeah. Not here, anyways. No. <laughs> But I also have uh, another kind of national current event just yesterday, Monday, November 1st. The USDA approved the Iowa State Hemp Plan, um, which allows the Idaho State Department of Agriculture to license hemp producers and handlers under the Idaho Code in the Farm Bill passed in 2018. Mm-hmm. So this allows farmers in Idaho to legally grow produce hemp so that that's a huge thing and what was like the reaction idaho does it say was it like yay or was it like eh? it was yay okay i just didn't know <laughs> it was it was a yay because um back in 2019 three out-of-state truckers were arrested because they were traveling i'm sorry not traveling they were transporting um industrial hemp through the state mm-hmm. and they were caught and of course it wasn't legal then. 
They, yeah. So they got in big trouble for it. <laughs> yes, they did. So in this article, it cites that some Idaho farmers said hemp is a des- desired crop for a number of reasons. The co-owner of 1000 Springs Mill, um, Tom Corney, said, quote, it's not a drug at all. It's an actual healthy commodity, and that's all it is. Um, so he said that it's very high in nutritional value. The grain has omega-2s and 6 and amino acids, so it's got a lot of protein, if not more, than like soybeans. Hemp is extremely agreeable to the body, and it fits into the line of products. So hemp is um, used kind of like cotton, where it can be used to like create a fabric, so you like spin it. Um, The article also states that it doesn't require a lot of water, like some grains, and the process for harvesting is new and only training, but it's going to be worth it. You grow hemp to make like lotion and CBD oil and other stuff like that too, don't you? Yep. Yeah. There's a lot of uses for it, kind of like how we're using corn for, you know, different products and oil, or not oil, but ethanol, Mm -hmm. and soybeans for their oil and stuff. Mm -hmm. Popcorn. 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 Um, but yeah, hemp has become a lot of uses to it. Yeah, yeah, it's gotten it's gotten pretty big in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. I would say, and I think we're gonna see an even more rise of legalization for growing in some of the more so. western it'll states. It'll be yeah, it'll be definitely a trend. I would yeah. I would imagine it would become a trend. Yeah, obviously we can't predict the future, but wouldn't that be nice? But it seems like it. So I think that's it for our national news. So we have. Just another fun thing to add. We are going to go to the Exceptional Women's Conference again in Norfolk this year. We're super excited about it because it's going to be in person so we can attend it and go to all of our different um, workshops and conferences and learn a little bit more about ag and different people and everything like that. Meet some new people. Um, So I'm really looking forward to it. How are you guys? (laughs) I'm I'm looking forward to it too. I mean – I haven't attended it before because you guys oh, went yeah. um, right when COVID hit. So it was over Zoom, right? We, well, we went our freshman year. So you weren't even here Yeah, yet. I was at Northeast. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think I did more of the background stuff for that. Like not a whole lot of anything that actually was being presented or anything. Mm-hmm. But yeah. So I, it'll be fun to go back to Northeast uh, and see some of my old professors that help with that. Listen to the speakers. There's a lot of good topics, and I'm interested to come back and share those. And then we'll be going on Friday, November 19th. It's going to be an all-day conference. I'm so happy I'll be able to go this time because usually I have to miss the conferences because I have, like, classes or other stuff. But I'm taking off work, skipping class, (laughs) and I'm going to go to this one. Yeah, and it's at at least it's on a Friday. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's not um, too far away. Yeah, it's pretty close and... Obviously, Agnes knows all the hookups, so we'll get into the good <laughs> spots this year, right? <laughs> Maybe. I don't have my student card anymore. I'm just so. kidding. <laughs> I know one of our opening sessions is going to be um, Depression in the Heartland by Erica Macbeth, which is uh, our opening speaker. So she's just going to be talking about kind of like depression and mental health. Um, she said she grew up in southwestern Kentucky, so that's kind of similar to the Midwest. But she's just going to talk about um, 
trying to navigate life with agriculture and depression and mental health and all of that. So I'm looking forward to that one, as well as all of the other sponsored. I know the Nebraska Corn Board is a sponsor of this. I think um. I'm most interested to um, listen to, um, what is it, talking about me in a meatless debate? Yes. Or something like that? Yes. And I think I'm, I'm really interested to uh, listen to that one, because um, when I... W- was at Northeast, we went to the Nebraska Cattlemen and we had a speaker talk a little bit about, you know, talking about those kind of topics where it's like um, producers and um, not anti-agriculturalists, but like anti-meat, anti-animal yeah. um, use kind of. Mm-hmm. And just having those conversations that can get very heated very quickly mm-hmm. and just trying to find a common ground before you even start talking. Speaking of that, so this weekend my mom said that she had read an article um and it was like PETA had posted that the World Series should stop using the term bullpen. Yeah. Because it <laughs> because it's offensive mm-hmm. to like the animals that are held there before like and are scared and everything like that. It's like really? <laughs> yeah, I saw seems, that article and I just had to like laugh a at stretch. <laughs> their their whole thing was that it's where they're held before they go to butcher. Slaughter, yeah. And I'm like, first of all, bulls usually are not being slaughtered. <laughs> and the bullpen is usually just a pin for bulls to be in so that yeah. they're not breeding so that they're at separate the wrong time. from everything else. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, we we have a pin at home and we just call it the billy pin it's where we usually put the billy when you know he he's not out with his girlfriend you know i don't think the PETA people who like were behind that really really got what a bullpen is for yeah no but but yeah this meatless debate that that we are is one of the sessions that we get to go to uh says they're going to examine both the nutritional aspect of the debate as well as the positive impact that livestock have on the environment versus the myth that eating less meat would, like, you know, mm-hmm. help the environment. Yeah. Like, obviously, if you're a vegan, vegetarian, that's fine. That's yes. your choice. But I think it's important, like you said, to look at the actual nutritional values and facts, what animals do for the environment. Because you can't just, like, set all the animals free and just, like, let them go because they're domesticated. They'll just die. They don't know what to do by themselves. Yeah, like <laughs> well, and uh, a lot of livestock, like they have to have some type of shelter. And if you're like run free, where are they gonna where go? Are they gonna go? <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, there's grass for half the year over here, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, but yeah, I'm so I'm interested in that because um, we are seeing a lot more uh, products that um, are not animal-based but are you know um like beyond egg i think mm-hmm. and then beyond, beyond beef and meat, stuff like yeah. that so i think it'd be interesting to doesn't burger king that. have like a there's yeah. a lot of fast food uh burger king uh That's, culver's I'm have one think of the, what they call the the impossible whopper yes, yeah the impossible whopper That's yeah. what I'm thinking of. And, and there's culver's has a black bean burger yeah um I think a, almost every now fast food restaurant with like beef has some torpedo. I was trying to think some of type substitute. Of I was trying to think yeah. if like McDonald's had something, but I, I can't don't think, think of so. It. I can't think of anything either. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, you got your chicken nuggets. You got your, you got like, your Big Mac, Big Mac fish and fillet. Burgers. That's about it. Yeah, um, I can't think. Of, I can't think if they have one or not. And maybe it's just not, not pushed in the Midwest. That's it might true. be more spon- not sponsored, marketed towards like you know, the East and West Coast. Yeah, That's a, where yeah. there's a bigger uh, niche market, market for yeah. it. But one of the sessions we're also excited about, at least I am, um, is like a brief history of corn and like genetic breeding and um, just how corn has been domesticated. Because mm-hmm. yeah. we have talked about that in this podcast yeah. before about like GMOs and everything mm-hmm. and corn is a really big one for that. So I'm excited to go to that session too. I think I'm going to it at a different time than you guys. But um, I'm excited too because I uh, like – there's obviously been a lot of, like, evolution to mm-hmm. corn, especially recently in the past couple of centuries. So it'll be kind of – I think it'll be really interesting to learn about that and the different changes and even, like, looking toward the future of, like, what other changes could be made to it. Mm-hmm. So that'll be cool. Yeah. I'm looking forward to the ag-related tax issues one. I know it, you guys aren't <laughs> going to it. But I'm excited because I know very little about taxes. I'm not a math person, so it doesn't make sense to me. So I just want to go so I can kind of expand my horizons and learn a little more. Because obviously tax issues are pretty – they're kind of hard to understand, especially if you're like me and are just horrible at everything like – law tax related you know so yeah. i'll be i'll be interested to like just learn some more about it and maybe see some different issues that arise with agriculture and taxes because obviously there's a lot of different um avenues that that hits so yeah i'm i'm looking forward to that so i can learn something new i think that wraps up our podcast for this week so thanks for listening um I know it's been a while. We haven't uh, had a podcast the last couple yeah. weeks because we had, we've had we updates had, happening. We had station. fall break, and then we got a new radio station system, which is called Zeta. We're really excited about it, but now we're back. We're better than ever. We have another semester to go. So, so. we are all going to graduate <laughs> in the spring, everybody. We're really excited. <laughs> we are. But, yeah, thanks for listening. Uh, tune in to the next podcast. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Ag Knowledge. This podcast was created by Agnes Kurtzels, Claire Horning, and Whitney Winter as a part of Radio Production Workshop at Wayne State College. Tune in on Thursdays at 5 p.m. for more Ag Knowledge and listen to KWC 91.9 The Cat on the TuneIn app. Previous episodes can be found on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes are released on Fridays to these and other platforms. Music is Surf Day by Marcos H. Bolanos, found on freemusicarchives.org. The song was edited for the use of this podcast.